Up to this point, I had never decided to cover a case based on a single quote that I read in a newspaper. Of his missing wife, who others described as kind, loving, and friends with everyone, Gilbert Hines said, quote, She was a person who detests people. And then he added that she was the type who, quote, Most enjoyed getting out into the woods so far you'd have to fly a kite to find her. That certainly doesn't sound like a man who had fond memories of his wife. A woman who disappeared one day, never to be heard from again. It's my opinion that Gilbert Hine knew from the jump that his wife didn't walk away to a better life. But I'm guessing he hoped everyone else would. because we all searched. He was a, one of their foster kids, John David. What was his last name? John David Hine. He was supposed to have been adopted. Well, if he wasn't adopted, his name wouldn't have been Hine, would it? I was told by the sisters, they were older. They told me years later that uh, my parents had come back out there to pick me up because uh, Gilbert Hine was, um, he worked in the juvenile court uh, system sisters say that he walked off into we had orange groves back then and walked off into the orange groves with the two of them and that's the last uh, she heard of them i stopped going there when i was 14 because it was supposed to be uh what he called a court order that i visit on weekends and uh when they got divorced my mom and dad got divorced and i stopped going at 14 and my, then I went back at 18 and my mom said, did Gilbert ever touch you? And I said, yeah, why do you think I stopped coming here? And oh, she, no. He had a little card that he had from the Sarasota hospital where you can clearly see where someone had taken an uh, eraser and scratched out uh, a name and he put my name on there with a birthday. So I don't even know. <laughs> my birthday's probably not even right. Parish, Florida, a little hamlet on the banks of the Manatee River, lured settlers in the mid-1800s with its open, rich land that was perfect for cattle and ranching. The area was also great for growing orange groves, which will yet again play a small part in this season's story. On January 15, 1972, Kathleen Hine, or Kay, known to her friends, was scheduled to spend the day at the local fairgrounds in Palmetto, Florida. She was to be working in the poultry barn and had prearranged to meet a friend at the front gate when she arrived so that they could go in together. The first signs of a problem that day were when Kay called her daughter Betty around 7 or 8 that morning. Betty said that her mother told her she needed to talk to her about something, something important, and then she said she heard a scream and something like, I've got to, he's going to, and then the phone died. 
She tried to call back, but she got no answer. So Betty called her sister-in-law, Daphne Ford, and told her what had occurred. The women decided to go out and check on Kay at the ranch. About an hour after the call, Betty says that they arrived at the Hine property, and her mother's blue Ford was sitting inside the gate to the right of the house. She said she felt the hood, and it was cold. There was a Jeep truck parked closer to the house, and she said its hood was warm. She said that Gilbert Hines' Volkswagen was not there. When she opened the front door, she said there was an awful smell. There was furniture out of place, as if there had been a struggle. They noticed a footstool that was laying on its side, which the women had to step over to move further into the house. In the front bedroom, Betty saw her mother's gun holster laying in the middle of the floor, but her gun was nowhere to be found. In that same room, Kay's purse was laying on the dresser with items strewn about, and her keys were hanging off the edge, almost ready to fall to the floor. Betty said that the floor seemed wet. When they noticed what they believed to be a bullet hole beneath the bedroom window, both Betty and Daphne began to cry, and they immediately left the house. They did peer into Kay's car on the way out, and they saw her prescription sunglasses, which Betty said she never went anywhere without. The two women left and immediately went to notify Kay's father, Harold Folk, of what they had found. This is Cheryl, one of Kay Hines' daughters. What it was is I, I was living in El Paso, and but I had borrowed uh, like 36 bucks from my mom for, I had met my uh, second husband, and we were going to leave El Paso and wherever it was and go by a bus or something. And anyway, mom sent, I asked mom to send me money. She sent me 36 bucks. And then after I got to El Paso, got two jobs, I sent her back 50 bucks. And she went and bought a 38 police special. And I know that she bought it because she bought it from a pawn shop there in Palmetto. And uh, when I sent her her money back, she loaned me, you know. What did she want the gun for, did she tell you? Oh, I asked her that. She said, uh, for rattlesnakes. And she said, one in particular. Hmm. Now, it's notable that Betty did not mention in any of her statements that she had seen the two young boys at all, John David and Charlie, Kay and Gilbert Hines' sons, who were approximately 10 and 11 at the time. Harold Folk, Kay's father, went to his daughter's house shortly after being notified by his granddaughter. He said Kay's car was there, and as he walked to the door, he could hear children crying. It appeared to him that there had been a fight in one of the bedrooms. He noticed his daughter's purse, her car keys, and one of her hair pieces lying on the floor. Kay Hine had a genetic condition where she was unable to grow hair, so she always wore wigs. Her father would later say that he saw a stool lying on the floor with one of the legs broken off. So this seems to corroborate essentially what Betty and Daphne saw when they entered earlier. It's unclear, based on the report, what time he ran into Gilbert that day, whether he was at the home when he first arrived and heard the children crying, or whether Kay's father went back after he went to the sheriff's office, because he went there directly after viewing the scene to report his daughter missing, but at that time they said they couldn't do anything. She hadn't been gone for long enough. Kay's father argued with the deputies because he knew something was wrong, 
and they ordered him to leave the premises or he would be locked up. But Harold did run into Gilbert sometime that day. Again, it's not documented clearly if he went back or if he ran into him the first time he was at the property, but he said he asked his son-in-law what happened to Kay, and Gilbert told him that he had dropped her off at the fairgrounds, and then he said, Harold, I'll take care of it, and he shut and locked the door, leaving Kay's father outside. This would become a pattern on the part of Gilbert Hine when anyone came by looking for Kay after that. He would shoo them off the property. Betty said that she went back to the ranch the next morning. Nobody was around, so she drove down Rye River Road and stopped her car at the gate that leads back into the ranch by the river. She was essentially trying to access the property from a different point than the main driveway. Betty climbed the gate and she said she noticed fresh tire tracks that looked like Jeep tire tracks. So she followed them a few yards and she noticed footprints deep in the sand. She continued to follow them until Gilbert's brother Clyde suddenly appeared and told her to get off the property and stay away. He had what she described as a rifle or a shotgun in his hands. But she wasn't deterred. Betty went back again the next day, now two days after she had spoken last with her mother. Her grandfather had told her that the boys were crying when he went out to visit the house. So she drove up and she saw a large fire burning on the left side of the ranch house. Gilbert and his brother Clyde were standing on the opposite side of the fire and she saw Gilbert toss one of Kay's monkeys into the fire. She heard it cry out and she screamed at Gilbert, What are you doing? He yelled back, Get out of here. They're my animals too. But he again ordered her to leave and when his brother Clyde started coming toward her, Betty ran for the car. It would be two more days before police got involved and by then, Gilbert Hine wasn't letting anyone else on the property, and it appears that police never pushed the issue. I started this project like I always do. I scoured court records and newspaper accounts, and I researched family trees while waiting for the results of my FOIA request to arrive. Police reports where I assumed I might find some actual facts. Because I always assume, and often find, that once I do get the report, most of my questions will be answered. I expect to find a decent number of facts right there in the initial incident report. Well, that is absolutely not what I found here. The entirety of that initial 1972 investigation into missing person Kathleen Hine is nine pages. Nine pages. And not only is it nine pages, but they are nine pages where most of it is white space. I don't think I have to tell you that that's an immediate red flag. From that report, we learned that five days after she went missing, police finally took a report from Harold Folk, Kathleen's father. It should have been immediately concerning to law enforcement that her own husband, Gilbert Hine, wasn't the one who contacted them about his missing wife. On page one of the report, under the box labeled Reason for Absence, the missing person's report notes, Might have left husband and in another box, which is titled Personal Habits, is typed, Subject has been known to drink. Both of these things were told to police by her husband, Gilbert Hine, when they visited him at his place of employment, which was as a clerk in the juvenile court building in Manatee County, Florida. Gilbert Hine told police that he had driven his wife to the Agricultural Center in Palmetto for the fair five days earlier, and she never came home. 
I should note that K. Hine loved animals. They had a lot of them out on the ranch. In one letter that K. wrote to a friend in 1966, among the animals that she discussed having was a pet skunk. Quote, A little devil who bit me this morning, and he's been real good, but he likes to sleep in, and I wanted to measure him for a lead halter, and he wasn't in the mood. Yeah, she had, they had goats, chickens, ducks, geese. She even had a, oh, what do you call them, birds that the big tail goes up, up and over. Uh, Peacocks? Yeah, she had one of those. She had a monkey, and she was trying to get get me, uh, trying to start up a, um, a zoo. Yeah, she was trying to start a zoo, so everywhere I would go, she'd tell me, go to the zoo and see if they got anything for sale. You know, she's mm. trying to open up a zoo, because there was none in Manatee County. Yeah, a monkey too? Yeah, just a spider monkey, but Gilbert shot it and threw it in that hole. What? He killed it? Yeah, he killed a bunch of animals, and it's supposed to be in that hole that John said. supposed to be in that hole where John dug. Kay was active in the farming community. In fact, I tracked down a 1964 Bradenton Herald article that noted that she had been one of six people chosen to be farm census enumerators, meaning that they would each canvas a section of Manatee County Farms for the 1964 agriculture census. Now, it didn't make any sense to anyone that she wouldn't show up to the fair as scheduled. She had been excited about it. And it certainly didn't make sense that she would leave their two young adopted sons, John and Charlie, ages 10 and 11, as well as all of her animals. She was the one that took care of those animals, she and the kids. That first time that police spoke to Gilbert at his office, his lackadaisical response was that maybe she was at her daughter's house. So police went to Betty's house, and obviously Kay wasn't there because Betty had been raising alarm bells for days since her mother went missing because of that disturbing phone call that she received that morning. As I read the report, I'm left to wonder what police did in the next 16 days, but it appears nothing. In the decades to follow, an investigator around 2004 would write this in the investigative file. During that era, investigators more or less took his word for it and failed to conduct any further investigation into her disappearance. Yeah, that's not something you want to hear when you're reading a police report. Mom called her and said, I need to talk to you. And then she screamed, and the phone went dead. So she went over there, drove over there, and the house was total wrecked, like from fighting. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, did did she call you and tell you this story right after it happened or years later? Or right was Right after it happened. Okay, so she did call you right after it happened and said and she wasn't living there at the time, but was she living nearby? Yeah, she was living in Bradenton. Okay. The time. All right. And so I, I assume since she lived close, she she interacted regularly with her mother and would have The newspaper article says something about, let me see. Um the daughter, Betty Jackson, who later changed her name to Deborah Dingledine, told investigators her mother called her the morning of the disappearance and was crying, saying that she had to talk to her. She was having a lot of trouble at home. She said, God help me, he's going to kill me. Um, then, the phone, then the phone went dead. And then she, another woman, and Hines' father went out there immediately but did not find her mother there. Sixteen days after the incident, Kay's daughter, Betty, showed up at the Manatee County Sheriff's Office demanding to know what's been done about her missing mother. 
At that time, the person who would become the investigating officer in that 1972 case, Lieutenant Roy Little, told her that he didn't know anything about the case because it had come in while he was away. So he pulled out the incident report from records and read what could only have been at that point a page or two. Kay's daughter then gave the lieutenant information about where her mother might be. She had been told by someone, and apparently the investigator didn't bother to ask who, but Betty had been told that her mother was with a man by the name of Pat Duke, and they were holed up at a Holiday Inn in Joliet, Illinois, room 207, to be specific. The next line reads as follows. I sent a teletype and received an answer stating that white female Kay Hine and white male Pat Duke checked into the Holiday Inn on January 16, 1972, and checked out six days later on the 22nd. So Lieutenant Little told Kay's daughter Betty this, and she said, I don't believe you. I find it strange that this alleged teletype does not exist within that original nine-page file, given it was one of the very few things done from an investigative standpoint. It would be another ten days before they learned that this tip was not accurate. This according to newspaper accounts because it wasn't even documented by the investigator. Allegedly, it was later learned that this was another woman with a similar name. And again, there's no information on how it was learned, how it was investigated. It's just a note in a newspaper article. But at the time, Betty knew it was false information. So she continued to call the police, saying that she didn't believe it. At one point, she spoke to a deputy that was working the front desk, and the report says that she cussed him out, and then she called the state attorney. Suffice to say, Betty Jackson, daughter of Kay Hine, knew from the beginning that something was wrong, but was being told that her suspicions were unfounded. So let me ask you this. What do you do when you know something's wrong, but nobody is taking your concern seriously? What do you do? The investigators did go back a second time to speak with Gilbert Hine, again at his workplace at the court building. They never once asked him to come down to the station and give an actual witness account. This time, he told the officer that he knew their office had done all that they could do to locate his wife, and he was very embarrassed that his stepdaughter was making such trouble for them. Not a single worry about his wife. He was more worried about how his stepdaughter was embarrassing him. When the lieutenant showed Mr. Hine the teletype from Illinois regarding his wife being holed up in a Holiday Inn with Mr. Pat Duke, Hine told the officer that Kay had done the very same thing about 14 years ago and that she'd been running around with other men prior to leaving this last time. He failed to mention that it was him that she had been with 14 years earlier when she left her previous husband and that she and Gilbert had been together since. Hine told police that Kay often stayed out all night something that was refuted by literally every other person that I asked. Mr. Hine then assured the lieutenant that if he thought anything was wrong, he would have been the first to complain, and he promised to contact them if he heard anything from her or about her. But Gilbert Hine was not even remotely concerned about his missing wife. Over three weeks later, Mrs. Pat Duke called the Manatee County Sheriff's Office and wanted to know if what Betty Jackson had told her was true about her husband and Kay Hine. Apparently, Betty was busy blowing up her phone. I actually think it was pretty smart of her to go right to the source because if someone told me my husband was holed up in a motel out of state with someone, I'd obviously join that person's charge in getting to the truth. But Mrs. Duke was not amused. She told the officer that she spoke with her husband and he said that he hadn't seen Kay Hine. 
Lieutenant Little seemed to toss up his hands and shrug innocently, telling Mrs. Duke he didn't know anything about her husband and Miss K. Hine. All he knew was what was on that teletype, the information that they had given him when he called the Holiday Inn. Mrs. Duke told the lieutenant that she was going to contact her lawyer and have him get in touch with Betty, since the woman wouldn't stop calling her. This tip would eventually be unfounded. Eight days later, exactly a month after Kay went missing, Lieutenant Little spoke with Kay Hines' adult son from a previous marriage. His name is Ronald Frost, and I'm going to read this page directly from the report because I think this statement is what hammered that final nail in the coffin that was the investigation into Kay Hine going missing. Mr. Frost stated that he's not worried about his mother because this is not the first time this has happened. Mr. Frost stated his mother left in the same way about 14 years ago, leaving three small children behind and never came back for about a year. He also said the family tried to get Betty Jackson to quit coming out to Miss Hines' house and taking her off. He said they would go to Tampa and the bars around town and she'd get his mother drunk. Mr. Frost said he took his mother their rent money of $45 on Friday, the day before she went missing, and he gave it to her. At that time, he said she told him she was getting tired of being tied down and was going to have some fun. He also said she told him she bought a little bottle of booze and got drunk and she liked the feeling. Mr. Frost said Betty's just trying to start trouble because she likes to be the center of attention. He also stated that his mother said she'd like to go back to Mexico, and from there, he said there's no telling where she could be. He did say if everybody would just settle down, she'd probably come back. But as far as things go, he said he wasn't going to hunt for her. He will call if he hears anything. Admittedly, as soon as I read that, I thought, oh my, well, maybe she did run away. Still, you know how you see something and you know there's something not quite right about it and you can't explain it exactly, but you just know something's, something's a little off? I noted how Ronald Frost used the exact same phrasing as Gilbert Hine had. That whole 14 years ago thing about Kay running off. That number 14 just tripping off his tongue. The thing about this not being the first time that she's done something like this. But I learned fairly soon after that that Ronald Frost was living on property that was owned by the Hines and he was paying rent directly to them. I'd later learned that that fact played heavily into what he said to police that day and what he didn't. But if you're an investigator and you're hearing this from the son of a woman that you're being told is a drinker and appears to be itching to run off, I imagine it would tend to lead your investigation in a certain direction. While I'd expect officers to have a bit more intellectual curiosity in the matter of an actual human being suddenly leaving without her car, her prescription glasses, or a single belonging, we also have to remember we're talking about 1972. For context, it wasn't until the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was passed in 1974 that women were even able to get credit cards in their own name. So, yeah, the idea that men investigating the disappearance of a woman whose husband had a respectable job in the county clerk's office would take his word for what had occurred is not all that surprising. They did go back one more time, a third time, to speak with Mr. Hine at the court building. And that's probably because Kay's daughter, Betty, was still riding their asses like Seabiscuit, with no sign of stopping in sight. Lieutenant Little brought his captain with him that time, and in that meeting they were interested in Kay's purse and glasses, because they had been told by Betty that they'd been left behind. 
Mind you, they didn't bother to go check that out themselves. They didn't document this in the report. They never went to search the house for said purse at all. They just went to ask Gilbert, hey, we're being told that the purse and glasses are still at your house, you know, so what's up with that? Gilbert Hine told them that he hadn't seen her purse or glasses around the house, but he looked for them when he got home. And then he immediately deflected back to saying that this wasn't the first time she had pulled this. About 14 years ago, she just up and left and came to Virginia where he was and stayed gone for a whole year while she was still married to her previous husband. He told the officers that when they returned to Florida together, she would hide to keep people she knew from seeing her. He said that she started running around with other men with her daughter Betty. To their credit, the investigator asked Gilbert how he felt about that, you know, her running around with other men. And Gilbert told them they never fought about it. See, now my bullshit detector would have been on red alert at that point, but Gilbert insisted that he had told them all he could and he had nothing more to add about his missing wife. He continued to maintain that he dropped his wife off at the fairgrounds, presumably without her purse and her prescription sunglasses. Police spoke with a man named John Flaherty, who knew Kay well. He was a local farrier and he had just seen her that Friday before she went missing because he had serviced her horses. He told them that she was in a good mood that day and nothing stood out. Again, to their credit, because I am really stretching to try to give them credit when it's due. Just over a month after she went missing, Lieutenant Little, along with two detectives and the captain of the Palmetto Police Department, went to the wooded area of the Hine residence and made a check of the area. Quote, As best as we could from 9 a.m. to 5.15 p.m. Due to being such a large area of thick woods, we looked the area over as best we could. We used Captain Keck's jeep wagon to search the area. We also checked the old homestead, but found nothing. Investigation continues. The home itself was never searched. There's no indication that they ever even asked Gilbert Hine for permission to nose around inside the house, or even followed up on that purse and the glasses. The last person they spoke to was the woman that Kay Hine was supposed to meet at the fairgrounds that Saturday on the 15th. She told them that they were to work at the poultry barn together that day, but Kay never showed up. She had seen her that Thursday before at the fairgrounds and everything was fine at that time. They discussed the barn setup and nothing about that day seemed off to her. The last page of that nine-page report ends with the words INVESTIGATION CONTINUES in all caps. But that proved to be untrue. Because this is the sum total of the original investigation done into the matter of missing person Kay Hine. Did you live there up until you were 14 or just go to visit um, at no, certain times of the year? Went, only went on weekends when I was uh, up to 14, from 10 to 14. She walked out when we were, when I was 8 or 10 years old, I forget. And I just know that we had to go to bed at 6 o'clock and while we were in there sweating to death, one night there I heard this Johnny Carson show. Everybody knew that came on at 10 o'clock. And I heard Charles and John giggle or something. So I got up and went and snuck over by the edge of the door. And Gilbert and Mom were sitting there. They split a beer, you know, in a jar, glass, you know. They were both sitting in recliners side by side. And the kids were on the floor. John and Charles was on the floor. And I stood there and I put, turned my head around the corner and I said, why do they get to stay up but we have to go to bed? 
But that's one other reason that I told Dad I wanted to stop going there. I got tired. I didn't want to tell him I was sick of Gilbert, but I wanted to, because uh, my dad would go over to kill went over and killed him, you know. And I told him I was tired of being treated like a foster kid. Me and Roger wasn't included in anything because we were foster kids. You know, right? Like I said, I was 14 and I, Dad says, get ready to catch the bus tonight after school. And I said, do we have to? He looked and I said, this is like Friday. And I said, are you uh, getting in trouble with the judge if we don't go? And he goes, no, why? No wonder I said, no. And he looked over at Roger and Roger kind of nodded his head, I guess, and agree, agreed. So he said, no, you don't have to, you know, so we stopped going. One day I was, when I was 18 and I was out there, she was milking a cow and she stopped and she said, did you, did you ever touch you? And I said, yeah, why do you think I stopped coming here when I was 14? What do you think made her ask you that? Because I think the foster kids must have told her. John, specifically, did he ever say that he told her that Mr. Hine had abused him? Oh, mentally. <laughs> John, Charles was the favorite, you know, and but John was treated like dirt. He said he, he told me that him and Mom both, you know, Mom got every day, I could kill you and get rid of your body and no one would ever find you. Gilbert told her every single day. Who who do you th- whose idea was the foster community? Your mother's or your father uh, or Gilbert's? Probably Gilbert's. And do you think I that do. was to be around children for the purposes of abusing them? I don't know, but I don't know. The only the only thing is is not, like mom asked me how when I said every time I'd walk by him he'd grab either my crotch or my boob. Were you little, were you little, the only girl I, child in the house at the time? Uh, yeah. Did they take in boys and girls for, to foster? Yeah. After you told her that, how much time after that was when she went missing? Right after. So it was close in time period, like the same year, oh, yes. the same. Oh no, no, within weeks. Did she ever tell you that she confronted him about it? No. She just. As soon as I told her, she got up right then and walked out of the barn, left the cow standing there, and walked out of the barn. And then I think the next day I left there. Do you remember there being a lot of kids in the house at once? Or just... No, most of the time it was like, I think she had a limit of eight, I think. Okay. But like I said, that one weekend, it was, uh, there was 32, seven in diapers for her to tend to by herself. And Gilbert seemed like he didn't mind having all those kids around? No. He didn't let them do him. He didn't help at all around the... No. And it's weird, when Mom first started it, she didn't really know, didn't have the training for it, right? She didn't really know, right? Mm -hmm. So she went and bought some toys, and she bought jump ropes for the girls. You know, one day she was looking out the window while she was washing dishes, and... There was a couple there called Danny and Diane, and Diane had one of the kids, she had the rope around his neck, and she was dragging him all over the yard. And Mom ran out there and grabbed the rope up. 
that back then the kids liked to jump rope, so you know she bought them jump ropes, not realizing that that was wrong. Right. Yeah. So you feel like she did a good job with the kids. She she wanted to do that. It wasn't something that she resented or anything. She liked doing it. Yeah, she just liked doing home. No, work away. She liked doing whatever it was at home, and she was raised on a farm. But I went there. My husband was a trucker, and he took me there. And uh, I, and uh, Gilbert happened to be at the house, and Gilbert opened up the trunk of her car, and that was another part that messed me up. All right, if she took off, which Gilbert was saying, then why did she leave her car, her purse, her pistol, her medicines, her all that stuff. And I saw her prescription sunglasses in, laying in the front seat of the car. And he opened the trunk, and there was a whole bunch of packed, neatly folded up clothes in the trunk. And I said, and he showed me, show, opened the trunk and showed me. And I said, what's all the clothes doing in her trunk? Well, I don't know. I guess she was planning the trip. <laughs> well, that's weird. I know. As I was digging into this, what even now speaking with you, the things that are concerning to me is like what you're saying, basically. We've got a, a woman that went missing, and she and her husband were clearly having some issues. He may have been abusing some of the, these kids, and now we come to find out that at least on one occasion, they ended up basically stealing a kid from their family who now doesn't even know who his birth parents is. That's horrifying. No documentation on that one. No. That was just, uh, you know, mom wanted the, the baby. His family came from Texas somewhere every summer and would come down and pick oranges. And he has like three other older brothers and sisters. He was six months old and the boss man didn't want uh, the grove, didn't want the baby out there in the orange grove. You know, the kids was all right. Mm -hmm. So she had to find some place to put the kids while they were working in the orange grove. And so somebody told the mother about my mom at a foster home. So my mom took the baby for, you know, a few weeks while they were um, in the orange grove. And they then she fell in love with him and she wanted to keep him. So Gilbert went out there. They came to pick their kids up. And Gilbert went out there and pulled a big bully baloney with him and said, leave him here or I'll get to risk your kids taken away from you. Oh, my God. Yeah, and her ki- their kids were helped. Big oranges which helped their fi- them financially, you know, the parents. So they basically stole this child. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my Definitely. God. Definitely. Did he ever get back with his family? No, he never found them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Did he live live there at that time when she went missing? Yes. And what did he tell you about that day or when it occurred? Well, the last, last thing he told me, Gilbert forced him to dig a hole six feet by six feet by six feet. And that was in the back in the backyard, and he knows exactly where the hole is. And he uh, was supposedly um, to burn trash, but his actual name was Danny, and uh, he had like three other siblings, brothers and sisters, older. But the uh, 
they had him in like a you know a carrier out there in the orange grove when they picked oranges and the boss man wouldn't allow him to keep the baby out there so i was told that somebody told him about Kay Hine had a foster home and that she could keep the kids while they were there for a couple of weeks you know um planting or picking oranges i'll say this I don't think anything would have been done with this case at all in the later years had it not been for Kay's two daughters, Cheryl and Betty. In May of 1988, investigators took a statement from Kay's daughter, Betty, and she signed an affidavit to the following information. She said that she believed her mother had been murdered by Gilbert Hine. She told them in 1971 she and her mother were at the CC bar in Palmetto, Florida, waiting for her sister-in-law, Daphne. And Kay said to her, I'm going to tell you something, but don't ever let Gilbert know because he will kill you and me. A few years ago, Gilbert and his brother killed a person and made it look like an accident, something to do with Rye River. Betty informed police that she had already been told that story three years earlier by her grandmother. Betty said that she saw her mother three to five times a month and had regularly noticed bruises on her body but when she would ask what happened, her mother would always say a horse kicked her, or she fell, or she would say that she didn't want to talk about it. Betty described one gruesome incident when she had been out at the ranch and was with her mother who was milking goats. Gilbert came out into the field and he got upset when a cow ran into him or something. He picked up a two-by-four and beat the cow with it. The next day, her mother told her that they butchered and cleaned that cow, so they had some fresh meat. For her if she wanted it. In another incident around 1971, she and her former husband were at the ranch, and Gilbert pulled out a gun and put it up against her husband's back and pulled the trigger. Gilbert told him, the gun won't fire when you're leaning against it. Another day in 1971, Betty was out at the ranch and her mother and Gilbert were arguing. Her mother told Gilbert at that time that she wanted a divorce. She said he turned around slowly and he laughed and he said, the only way you're leaving is in a pine box. Betty told investigators that at their final Christmas together, just about a month before she went missing, Kay took her outside and told her she had put money down on a facelift, and she didn't want anyone to know. She wanted Betty to drive her to St. Petersburg for the surgery. Kay told her that she really did love Gilbert, but she couldn't live this way. He was running around on her and doing other things. Kay told her if the facelift didn't help, then she was going to find a way to get out of there in one piece. She said, you just don't know. You just don't know him. And then she said, if I wanted to, I could ruin him. They would lock him up forever. But this isn't the time to be talking about things like that. Over the years, Harold Folk, Kay's father, told multiple people that after his daughter disappeared, the little boys, John and Charlie, told him that they heard Gilbert and Kay arguing, and they came out of their room off the kitchen, and they saw Gilbert throw a goat hair-covered footstool toward the front bedroom by the bathroom, but they didn't know if the stool hit her. Now keep in mind, those boys were around 10 and 11 at the time, and no member of law enforcement ever questioned them about what happened that day that Kay went missing. It would be decades before anyone in law enforcement asked John David to recount what happened that day and there wasn't a single statement in the report from his brother Charlie. After many years, John David would begin to remember, and he would give details about what he recalled. 
You'll hear from him in the next episode, because he graciously agreed to speak with me. Kay's daughters would continue for years to gather information and evidence. They pieced together what they thought might have happened based on what the children had said and what Betty and her father had seen in the home that day. What they thought happened went something like this. They believed Gilbert may have caught Kay on the phone with Betty and knocked the phone out of her hand, and then returned the receiver to its cradle. They then believed Kay ran for the bedroom in fear to grab her pistol, and Gilbert saw her with a gun, and either tossed the footstool at her or threatened to do so. Betty said that she had seen the gun holster laying on Kay's bed, but the gun was nowhere in sight. There was also that bullet hole near the bedroom window that Cheryl said looked to have been shot from the area of the bedroom door. They surmised that Kay had been hit by the stool and then Gilbert had shot her sometime thereafter. In one supplemental outlining one of the many calls that the investigator had with Kay's daughter Cheryl, she was concerned that the bullet hole had not been looked at by law enforcement ever to that point because the current tenant who had let Cheryl come into the house and look around the property was about to move in a few weeks. She was concerned that that might limit their ability to get in there and look at the hole. In letter after letter, Cheryl pled with them to come look at the bullet hole. At one point, the lieutenant noted this in the report. I asked her where she comes up with these stories, and she stated she just gets to thinking. These stories referred to the scenario that she and Betty had put together based on the little physical evidence that they had seen. The bullet hole. The broken stool the house in disarray, the missing gun with its holster on the bed, their mother's car still parked in the front of the house and her prescription sunglasses on the seat. In his report, Lieutenant Hackle wrote, I cannot track the record of who has lived in this residence since Gilbert left and cannot tell how long the bullet hole has been there or anything about what might have happened. I will try to get pictures of the bullet hole just in case for the peace of mind of Cheryl. You know, his assertion that he could not track who lived in that home is not accurate. Surely a list could have been compiled based on residents known to have rented. Many of those names are mentioned later in this report that I received. A curious investigator might have approached each of them, working backward to see if, one, any of them remembered seeing the bullet hole when they moved in, and, two, if any of them had discharged a weapon inside the home. That information could have narrowed down when the hole was there and wasn't there. Would any of this be concrete evidence? No, but if you had multiple residents sign affidavits saying that the hole was there when they moved in, and you had the gumption and wherewithal to follow that thread back to when Gilbert first rented the home out because he lived there for a long time after his wife went missing, perhaps you might have a solid piece of circumstantial evidence at the other end of pulling that thread. It's not that Lieutenant Hackle couldn't track that evidence down. It's that he didn't want to and that's unfortunate. I cannot reiterate strongly enough how much work Kay's daughters did trying to find the truth, how many hours they both put in. They understood the problems with Gilbert's story. Here's one very simple question posed by Kay's daughter, Cheryl, in one of her letters to police. Why would Gilbert have driven Kay to the fair? He told police she never came home, but he was never even asked how she was supposed to get home if he was the one who took her. She didn't have her car. That is a very good question. Kay's father, Harold Folk, would later tell police that her car was packed up with things for the fair inside. 
and he saw evidence of a huge struggle inside the home when Betty called him that day worried about her mother. Her daughter Cheryl says that years later Gilbert would show her boxes of Kay's clothes in her own car trunk and laugh and say, guess she was planning a trip. Gilbert Hines' story was clearly inconsistent. First, he insisted that she had run off with someone, but he also said at the same time that he dropped her off at the fair. Neither of those make sense. If she ran off with someone, you'd think she would take her car, purse, glasses, medication. None of that was missing. And if she went to the fair, why was her car parked in front of the house packed with items for the fair? I don't believe Kathleen Hine ever left her house that day. In fact, she may never have left that property, ever. What I found out through the years is, is it was called Rye Road. Gilbert Hines' mother was a rye. Oh. And, yeah, and lived right up the road from them toward the river. And uh, the rye owned all that land on both sides, all the way to the river. And I was told this by his, uh, his brother, Ward, and his wife. They, they owned all of that property on both sides. From what Betty claimed, she was shot, burned, and buried on that property. And it's obvious she was shot in the house because there's a bullet hole in the wall below the window. I saw it. But there used to be a barn in the back of it. And he burned that down first thing. And then there was a goat barn. And he burned that down. And then there was, right after my mom disappeared. And then there was two cabins off to the close, to, well, be right side of it. There was two cabins there. And he burned those down. Anything that was, you know, about mom, he burned down. So there's only the house left. Stay tuned. Original music this season by Lauren Marie and Tom Lively of the Houston-based duo Million Stars Missing. 